so we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would do his work because all of the study and preparation and delivery is an empty exercise unless the Lord blesses his word and uses it powerfully in the lives of his own. So we pray that he would do that. Let's hear from God's word now in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm actually going to pick up with the end of chapter 8. We're going to pick up with verse 20 in chapter 8. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it from this time with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we need to hear from you. We need your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of our hearts. We all need you. We all need to be drawn close to you. We all need to turn our hearts to you. We all need to pay closer attention to the things that we have heard that we may not drift from them. Some of us need to be turned to you for the first time to really, truly trust in you as our Lord and our Savior, as our King and our God. Holy Spirit, please come and do your work in each one of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You may be seated. The best stories end with a surprising piece of very good news that turns a tragedy into a story of joy. This is true of so many of your favorite movies and TV shows and books. You may not even be aware of it, but when the good guys seem completely beaten, when all hope seems completely lost, when sorrow seems to have the upper hand, there will come a little twist, an unexpected thing. J.R.R. Tolkien called this the, the U catastrophe. He takes this word catastrophe, we all know what a catastrophe is, right? And then he puts the prefix for good in it. It's a good catastrophe. It's, it's the unexpected thing that suddenly happens that makes everything right again. And so, in, in Tolkien's masterpiece, uh, The Lord of the Rings, when, uh, when the battle seems lost, in rides uh, Aragorn the king, and he's leading an army of the undead that he's raised by passing through the paths of the dead. And in that, he's a, a picture of, of, of Christ. He goes through death into life and leads an army into victory. Or, you know, in, in the, the original Star Wars movie, which is still the best one, you know, Luke's going after the Death Star, and it really seems like he's just about to get blasted out of the sky by Darth Vader. But in comes Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon. You thought he ran off because he was just selfish and greedy. He comes in and, you know, sends Darth spinning into outer space and clears the way for his buddy to go and blow up the Death Star. You see it in, in all sorts of movies. Harry Potter, when, when Harry is dead and gone, and the battle seems lost, and it seems like Voldemort is going to rule the world, and then, and then Harry comes back to life. Again, an intentional Christ figure in his death and resurrection. In fact, Tolkien said the reason why all good stories have a catastrophe is that the story of the world hinges on the catastrophe, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When darkness covered the face of the earth for three hours, and the most innocent and wonderful man who's ever walked the face of the earth, the Son of God, was hanging, beaten, shamed, humiliated on a cross, and he breathed his last, and all hope seemed lost. And his few followers were gathered in the upper room, huddled together, wondering what was going to come of them. Suddenly, unexpectedly, even though he had told them, <laughs> unexpectedly, he rises from the dead, and death is undone. We come today to a very familiar passage. You've heard Isaiah 9 before. And I would guess that 99% of the times that you've heard Isaiah 9, it's been at Christmas time. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This is actually the third time I've preached this passage at this church, which is the first time I've ever done that. I don't generally repeat preaching through passages, but twice before at Advent series, uh, I've preached through this passage. But we're coming to it again in the context of going through Isaiah. And in the context of going through Isaiah, we get a little bit more of an understanding of what 
the anguish of verse 1 and the deep darkness of verse 2 is really all about. These people have rejected the word of God. They have failed to trust in God. And so God is bringing upon them the great Assyrian hordes. We heard about this last week, this great river that overflows all of its banks and is going to sweep everything away as a flood before it. They are going to be under this oppression for years. That's, that's the significance of the land that's, that's named in these opening verses. I know sometimes you're reading the Bible and you come upon these weird words and it's always like, you know, you're in Sunday school class, you're like, oh please, I hope I don't have to read verse 1. Let somebody else read verse 1. I'll read verse 2. And then you get to, and it's uh, Zebulun, Naphtali. Okay. You may have enough Bible knowledge to sort of recognize those as two of the sons of Israel, two of the tribes, but they're like really obscure ones that you never hear anything about after, you know, the original like story of the 12 tribes. And so you, you don't know where it is, and he's like talking about stuff I, I don't really know about. And it can kind of make our eyes glaze over, and we're like, well, let's get on to the next verse. And we miss the significance of what's being said here. So I've given you a map on your insert, the same insert that has the prayer requests and everything. You'll see a map of Galilee of the Gentiles. And this is the far north of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And you see Zebulun and Naphtali, and you see the Sea of Galilee, and you see the other side of the Jordan, okay, all that area. This is all that area that's being talked about here. And within the context of Isaiah 8 and 9, the reason why this area is called out for special attention is that when the Assyrian hordes come, if you look at the map, you'll see just north of Israel, there's like that white space that's like off to the north. That's where the Assyrians are going to come from. And they're going to sweep down the valley that is created by that small lake that's north of the Sea of Galilee and that river that runs down to the Sea of Galilee and then down. And so where are they going to hit? And then they're going to head out to the coast. So, so when the Assyrian horde comes... These guys are toast. They're going to be wiped out. They get the first fresh attack of the mightiest army in the world rolling over their territory to get the prize. When we heard of Maher Shalal Hashbaz last week, remember his name meant swift to the booty, quick to the spoil swift to the plunder, quick to the, to, the, to the treasure. This army is going to come in like a flood, and they're going to sweep over this area, and that is going to bring them anguish and deep darkness. We, none of us have lived through the reality of what it's like to be invaded by and then subjected to a foreign power in a very quick period of time. It's, it's a nightmare. It's, you, you lose your freedom. You lose your wealth. You, you might lose your life. You, the lives of those around you are lost. And everything is turned upside down. And the reality is that this area is going to remain off and on under 
pretty severe occupation by outside forces for hundreds of years. And yet, Isaiah is given the vision of a time when this land, subject to slavery and subjugation, a loss of culture and identity, uh, a loss of life and security, this land will see their anguish end and incredible joy and freedom come to them. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Sometimes the darker the night, the brighter the light shines when it comes in and penetrates the darkness. The more hopeless the situation seems, the more joy that comes in the rescue. And so you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's six ways that this coming freedom and joy are described. First of all, it's described as the people walking in deep darkness have seen a great light dawn on them. Um, and one of my favorite cinematic depictions of this actually comes uh, in uh, the Two Towers movie, the middle movie of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The Battle of Helm's Deep, when all seems lost and everything is dark and everything's gloom, and uh, we're just the last holdout of the last fortress is run over, and then all of a sudden, just before the break of day, comes a shining light so brilliant that it stuns the enemy and overwhelms those captives with joy as Gandalf comes over, and he's Gandalf the White, and he's another picture of Christ that Tolkien's woven into that one masterpiece. But it, it is just the coming of light when everything seems dark. For us, um, many of you know uh, our family's story, but when I think of this, I think of um, a little baby bird cry that we heard in an operating room on April 6, 2004, when Andrew was born 10 weeks early and he hadn't moved in the womb for 48 hours before he was delivered and they didn't know why he wasn't moving exactly and Beth was in a bad way health-wise, and, and he got delivered, and they, they tried to brace us for the worst. They said he may have severe neurological complications. He may, he may you know, have life-threatening. And he was delivered. We're just praying, and we're singing, and we're reciting scripture, and we're just trusting the Lord, and he's born. And this little cry, this little two-and-a-half-pound baby cries, this little baby bird cry, and it was the most wonderful sound we'd ever heard in our lives, Right? It was, the, it was the, the shining light that came in the dark moment. But God brings that to his people. The nation will be multiplied. Their population will grow, and so their joy will grow too. The third way is said to be such a joy that it's a joy as when you're bringing in an abundant harvest. We have our, our Thanksgiving feast, and, um, you know, none of us ever, like, we do things that are connected to earlier ages in civilization, and they don't 
make that much sense when you disconnect them from what they meant earlier, but we put our own meaning, like we just stuff ourselves till we can't move and watch football till we pass out, which is perfectly wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. I have no complaint. But you see a Thanksgiving feast coming uh, toward the end of November when all the harvest was brought in and you knew that you had enough to make it through the winter with enough of an abundance that you could indulge in a great feast or actually extended days of feasting, which is why we have a four-day weekend for Thanksgiving because you're supposed to stuff yourself for four days in a row. (laughs) And then when you go back to work on Monday, you're supposed to be semi-catatonic. That's the right way to do it, okay? Um, (laughs) But this is the joy of bringing in such a harvest. We don't understand that because we have, you know, 10 grocery stores within a 10-minute drive of our house, and they're all shelves are full. But the idea that you bring in enough harvest that you're going to make it is a great joy. Or the joy as of dividing the spoil after a great victory in battle. This, this area wouldn't know anything about victory in battle. And so they're saying there's going to be such a joy. It'll be like you won the battle. And instead of having your stuff taken from you, you're getting to divide the spoil yourselves. The fifth way is that the oppression which has enslaved the people will be broken. And the sixth is that the war which has trampled the people will end. These six wonderful, powerful pictures of of incredible and abundant good news. And why do they come? Why do they come? You know, there's two very, very powerful words in the Bible. And they're little short words. And when we read the Bible, we can miss them very easily. R.C. Sproul was fond of saying that the most powerful word in the Bible is that little three-letter word, but... And we heard that in the scripture reading, right? You get to the end of chapter 8. They will look to the earth and behold darkness and distress, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was angry. That's a wonderful hinge word. The other little word that's so powerful is the word for. And it's a word that tells us why things happen. Why is it that this land that's been so oppressed, why is it that this area that's been under such darkness should see such light, should experience such joy? For, because, to us, a child is born. The birth of the child is the thing which turns everything. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is what God's way of saying at the end of it. This isn't a pipe dream. This is going to happen. The very zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to make sure that this is going to happen. This child born. Is a son given. In the context of Isaiah, we've already seen that Isaiah and his wife have been given three sons who were prophetically significant. They were signs of what God was going to do among his people. One of them, Emmanuel, pointed far beyond himself to a greater one who was to come. One who would be born of a virgin, as we saw in 714, and who would be God with us. 
This is that child. This is the one who's being unpacked for us. The son who's given here is a son unlike any other son. He's not just a sign. He's the one the signs are pointing to. He's not just a prophecy. He is the word of God made flesh. He's the son of God. He's Emmanuel. And he's given four throne names to reveal his character and anticipate his coming. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. It is interesting that that last child that Isaiah was given, who was given that special name, had a four-part name. Maher, Shalal, Hash, Baz. It was a four-part name. Quickly to the spoil, swiftly to the plunder. This is four much better names. They're titles. They, they speak of, of what he will bring. Before I go any further, I want us to see something that we may have missed. I want us to see something that we may have missed, and we may have missed it because it's not here, and I want us to see that it's not here. And that's this. What did the people do to merit such a gift from God? Where did the people repent? Where did they turn from their idolatry and turn to the Lord and cry out to him and realize how wrong they were? It's not here. God doesn't wait until people measure up to his perfect holy standard before he sends the blessing. That never happens at any point in these chapters or at any point in the history of God's people. What we need to see is that his move to free and redeem his people comes out of the abundance of his love for them and meets them at the point of their need. What they need for God to act is to be needy and in need of God acting. And what God has is love for them. What God has is, is, is the move to redeem them. We, last week we talked about internal and external conflict, and we talked about these key questions that sort of drive the plot of our lives. Right? I, I want us to think about that again. What are the biggest problems you face, and what causes them? If you would ask anyone in Isaiah's day, what's the biggest problem you're facing? In Judah, they would have said, oh, it's Israel and Syria. They're coming after us. They've already beaten us once before. They're going to beat us again. We need protection from this army. For those actually in this area, which is they are Israel. They're up in the north. They're one of the, the bad guys. in the last. But they're saying, oh, it's the Assyrians. It's actually, there's a, a real bit of sad irony that God's people in Judah are the ones who summon this pagan horde to run over God's people in Israel. It's kind of a long history of God's people being real nasty to each other. Well, why do they do it? Out of their fear. They're, they're, because they're driven by their fear. They do things out of panic that cause worse problems. Because what they don't understand is what their real biggest problem was. When Jesus came into the scene, when this son was finally born and he comes into the world, what did everybody in their day think their biggest problem was? 
Roman occupation. Right? You ask Christians today, what do you think our biggest problem is as Christians? And they might say, they might answer something political, they might answer something economic, they might answer something going on with their family or whatever. Our biggest problems are always what's going on in here. One of the reasons why it's good for us to study church history and learn about some of the heroes of the faith or martyrs of the faith in the past is we can realize that very clearly by seeing someone who's trusting God in the midst of unbelievable circumstances and who has more joy in those circumstances than we have in ours, and it kind of slaps us in the face and throws cold water in our face and says, wait a minute, my problem is not my circumstances. Now think of Corey Ten Boom and her sister studying the Bible in a concentration camp, and they're dealing with these fleas that are biting them, and they're just like, what? why are we here you know, and, and they realize, wait a minute, we have these fleas, and that means the guards don't come in here because they don't want to get the fleas, and so they leave us alone, and so we're free to study the Bible and worship the Lord. Praise God, and they praise God in a flea-infested Nazi concentration camp. I think of Richard Wormbrand, who was uh, a, a leader uh, of the church that came under Soviet occupation in Eastern Europe, and he's thrown into, into prison, and he's beaten on a regular basis. And when he's beaten, he prays. And the guard who's beating him says, why is it every time I beat you, you pray? And he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the Lord would have mercy on you and would save you. And that guard realized in that moment that Richard Wormbrand was more free than he was. And it broke his heart and turned him to the Lord. I think of Jan Hus, who was a, a pre-runner to the Reformation. He was burned at the stake for teaching the gospel. And as he was being burned alive, he was singing the Psalms. You see, the problem is never really what's outside of us. The problem is really that internal conflict. Uh, a Christian counselor that I'm friends with on Facebook posted this on Friday. I thought it was very helpful. He said, one of the questions I ask every new client to answer is, what kind of person do you want to be? No one ever says they want to be quick-tempered or selfish or fearful or lazy or unmotivated. But only those desperate for change ever do the work needed. The reasons for this may be complex and storied, but generally speaking, we would all rather just have our circumstances change instead of us being changed. So we need to stay away from the problem of thinking that our problems are all external to us. But there's also another problem that we could have, and that is if we, if we, do, if we do think, well, the problem is me, right? Then we kind of go in one of two directions, which can be very unhelpful. One is we go in a direction that says, the, the problem is me, and I'm just so weak, and I'm just so unable to change, and I just am the way that I am, and I've been this way forever, and it's never going to be any better, and just, oh well. My life's going to stink because I just, I'm the problem, and I'm stuck. So that leads us to real despair. Or... 
we might think, if I just work hard enough and do X, Y, and Z, then I'll overcome this and I'll be better. Both of those are wrong too because the first one causes us to hide from God in shame, thinking that our inadequacies are too great for him to heal. The other also drives us away from God into this self-reliance and self-righteousness. And where we need to be is in a place where we realize that the problem is internal, the real conflict is internal, and that Jesus is the one who can come and make us whole. That's what's revealed in Scripture. Out of the abundance of God's steadfast love, he meets us at the point of our deepest need. How? Well, Jesus comes. Jesus comes as our wonderful counselor because we are profoundly ignorant and we're held captive by lies. And so he has great wisdom for us because he is the truth and he is the wisdom of God incarnate. And his counsel is wonderful. The, this Hebrew word wonderful is really a word for miraculous it's, it's amazing. It's beyond human understanding. The crowds who heard Jesus teach were held in awe at his teaching, and they said, no one has ever taught like this man. And he is able to teach us today in such a wonderful way. He does something that no earthly counselor could ever do. Parents, you have had the experience of talking to your children knowing that they're hearing you, their eardrums are vibrating, and you assume that neurological impulses are going to their brain, but you feel like you might as well talk to the wall. You've had that experience. You wish that you could actually imprint the advice you're giving on their brain, on their heart, so that they would really believe it. Jesus does that. He alone has the power to do that. By the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, he actually changes us from the inside so that we stop believing the lies and we start really believing the truth. He's the wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He comes as mighty God because we are pathetically weak, completely unable to stand up against or overcome our truest enemies of sin, death, hell, and the devil. In fact, we are worse than powerless. We are sometimes co-conspirators with the enemies who are working against us. And so Jesus comes as mighty God, the eternal and all-powerful God-made flesh. He identifies with us, he represents us, and he overthrows our enemies for us. Nothing is impossible for him. No enemy can overcome him or overwhelm him. He is mighty God. He comes as our everlasting father because Without him, we are spiritual orphans, uncared for and unprotected in this world. Ephesians 2 says, without Christ, we are without God and without hope in the world. Now, just a side note, Isaiah is not making a comment about Trinitarian theology. He's not saying that Jesus is God the Father. He's saying that Jesus is an everlasting Father to us. Kings in the ancient world were seen as the fathers of their people, protecting them and providing for them. Human fathers are called by God, commissioned by God to provide and protect. We fail because we're fallible. 
but Jesus doesn't fail. He never gets tired. He never wears out. He's the everlasting father to his people. We are safe in his loving care. And finally, Jesus comes as our prince of peace. Because we're in such deep conflict and turmoil, we're completely unable to provide peace for ourselves. He secures peace. First, he secures peace with God on the cross by taking away all of our sin and replacing it with his righteousness. Then he gives us peace against our enemies of death and hell by overthrowing them in his resurrection. Then he sits at God's right hand and he never stops praying for us to be given his peace and to be kept in his peace. He says to us, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be discouraged and do not be dismayed. This is who Jesus is when he comes. And when he comes, he comes powerfully. We can see this when he actually came physically into the world. Because you know what else is significant about this area on this map? Not only is this the area that the Assyrian hordes ran over first, but this is the area where Jesus came and where he ministered. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary in Nazareth. After leaving and going to Bethlehem in Egypt, he came back and grew up in Nazareth. And when he entered into his public ministry, he did his public ministry in Capernaum. This is, this prophecy from Isaiah was literally fulfilled when Jesus came to this area. Matthew 4 tells us this. It says, now when he heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was written by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven came in the person of the king to these very places that were named in Isaiah. And here's the irony. Every Bible scholar in Jesus' day knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But you asked them about Galilee. It was such a despised place, such a compromised and corrupted place. They were like, nah. That's got nothing to do with it. Even though Isaiah was right here being very clear that this is where the light comes. This is where the one who is the Son of God comes. They missed it even though God had told them. What did he do when he came? It was here in Zebulun and Naphtali in the Sea of Galilee in the land beyond the Jordan that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount where he told his most well-known parables as the wonderful counselor who had truth to bring to the people. It's where he worked many wonders as mighty God, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, healing the paralyzed man whose friends tore a hole in the roof to get to him, and raising the dead. He came, he calmed the storms on the Sea of Galilee, he cast out a legion of demons from a man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He taught with such authority when he spoke about the word of God that it sounded as if he wrote the book himself. He overcame all opposition. He also came as an everlasting father, deeply moved by the compassion he had for the people who were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he patiently taught and he lovingly healed. And the effect that he brought to this area of the world was profound. And we miss this sometimes. I think sometimes there's little parts in the Gospels that we just sort of read over real quick and we miss 
It's like it feels like a transition from one story to the next, and we just sort of zoom through it. We miss the profound impact that Jesus had when he came to this part of the world. In Matthew 4, right after Matthew tells us that by going here, he's fulfilling Isaiah 9, he says this in verse 23 to 25 of Matthew 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, wonderful counselor, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Mighty God, everlasting Father. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And we read this in Luke 4. Now when sun was setting, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This was, we're talking about hundreds of people, thousands of people potentially, who were brought from all over. If anybody had any sick person, any demon-possessed person, any oppressed person, they brought them to Jesus, and Jesus made them well. Can you imagine the joy that brings? And Jesus did that because he wanted to show us his goodness and his power. But ultimately, he knew Heal someone of sickness, it's a temporary fix. Even cast demons out of someone, it's a temporary fix. Jesus knew the only way to bring about permanent hope and salvation for us, the only way to be our Prince of Peace and make a lasting peace for us, the only way to be the mighty God and to defeat all of our enemies once and for all, the only way to really care for us as an everlasting Father would be to go to the cross. By going to the cross, he fulfilled all righteousness, he took all of our sin, and then in his resurrection, he overcame death and hell forever. And that same Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is still today for us, for you and me who trust in him. He is still the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, who is reigning on David's throne and over his kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. He's reigning. He's reigning as he's building his church as the visible expression of the kingdom of God on earth. He's reigning as he calls us and works through us to continue his work, to teach the truth powerfully, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to bring the oppressed to Jesus, to be set free. He calls us to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim the gospel of salvation that he's brought to bring freedom, peace, and eternal life to all who trust in him. This is the profoundly wonderful part of it. Our head is in heaven, the head of the body, but we are the body. So how is Jesus' wonderful counselor in the world today? As we share his word and we pray for his spirit to write it on people's hearts. How is Jesus showing his power to save the lost? It is through us, who are his ambassadors, who are the members of his body, and who, 
who represent the king as he brings his kingdom into the world. That is happening now, and we participate in that work now. And one day, one day soon, when he comes again, he will bring a final end to all war, all evil and sickness and oppression, and he will bring into reality everlasting joy and peace forever. We are to tell the good news, we are to believe the good news, and we are to work toward that day by spreading the good news to the ends of the earth. Listen, I don't know your story. You don't know my story completely. I don't know what anguish you've suffered in your life. I don't know how the darkness has oppressed you in your soul or, or even how you're doing right now this morning. I don't know, but Jesus knows. And I know that Jesus, the same Jesus who was promised in Isaiah 9, the same Jesus who walked the hills of Galilee and who healed the sick, the same Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again from the dead, he is, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he is praying for you if you're trusting in him. And if you're not trusting in him, he is drawing you by his spirit. And if you will come, you will find that he is still the same wonderful counselor, the same mighty God, the same everlasting Father, and the same Prince of Peace. He brings us what we need out of the abundance of his love for us. So may we all come to him and trust in him and walk with him and wait for him with expectant hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is everything that we need for our deepest and truest needs and longings are fulfilled only in him. Would you write your word on our hearts? Would you draw us to Christ by your Holy Spirit? Would you anchor our souls securely in him that whatever we face, we would do so walking with Christ and trusting in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.